everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, the podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. I'm Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net, and with me is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist, Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you? I'm good, sir. I hope you are as well. I am. we got a couple different things to talk about today. Uh, a little bit later in the program, we're going to talk about some uh, drug news specific to the Inflation Reduction Act negotiations and one of the COVID-19 vaccines. But first, uh, we're going to talk about the Affordable Care Act a little bit. And that's because today, an appellate court, uh, the Fifth Circuit, is hearing arguments on a case about whether or not the Affordable Care Act uh, should be requiring uh, preventative care uh, to be free. Uh, and as a little bit of background on this, Judge Reed O'Connor, we talked about this a little bit uh, a couple months ago, ruled that the Preventative Services Task Force, which determines what preventative care is, is not appointed by Congress and therefore can't dictate uh, regulations to insurance companies. And I guess, Brian, we'll start there as just a little bit of a refresher. That, that What is this task force and what is it that they do? Well, the Preventative Care Task Force is sort of just what its name says. It's a it's a clinical tax for, task force that looks at what things are good medicine or clinically efficacious for preventative care. Things like when should a woman get a screening mammogram? When should men get a colonoscopy? When should what should be the the schedule for pediatric immunizations? And so it it deals with preventative healthcare services and it starts to develop guidelines. Um, on when those services should happen. The task force takes information from all sorts of, of entities, the American College of Radiology, the American Academy of Pediatrics, et cetera, um, along with other clinical literature, and it comes out with um, these guidelines on what are good medicine for preventative care. Uh, and is do you think Judge O'Connor, of course, people who have been following the Affordable Care Act closely over the last 10 years that we're still arguing about this, uh, Judge Reed O'Connor is no stranger to doing the Affordable Care Act. I think he was the one that tried to say that the whole law was unconstitutional and that got overturned. Yeah, yeah. He his was the case where he did. He issued a federal ruling saying the whole law was unconstitutional. You know that ruling was sort of immediately put on hold until it got to the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's the case where. Um, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court deemed that the law was constitutional mm -hmm. and, and deemed that the individual mandate uh, as an individual mandate um, violated the Constitution, and the Commerce Clause. But and this was the big thing, the big but was that it really wasn't a mandate. It was a tax and that the federal government has the ability to issue taxation, which allowed right. it to continue to stand. Mm hmm. Do you think that he's right in the sense that the preventative task force is not appointed by Congress and therefore can't be the one that dictates regulations, essentially, of what must and what should and shouldn't be covered under preventative care? Well, um, yes and no. Okay. Um, and what I would say of that is they're not the ones who are dictating it. So I don't think that they can dictate it. I think he's wrong personally in this idea that they're the one dictating it. What they're doing is... Um, they're providing information to the federal government okay. who has sort of deemed them to be the one they're going to look to. And the federal government could change. They could say, hey, we don't believe them anymore. We're going to now look at this entity. The, the thing that I have problematic with, with him on this saying, well, they're not, they're not appointed by Congress, therefore they can't provide information, that would close off an awful lot of input that the federal government gets mm -hmm. from external sources as it chooses as it you know implements laws and regulations so um 
No, I don't think he, I don't, I don't, personally, I don't think the ruling is correct because I think what Congress has done and what the federal government administration has done is said, well, in order to set these guidelines, this is the body we're going to currently look to. And they could change that if they didn't agree with him anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, just as a refresher, the, the ruling he made was that uh, basically the, the preventative care part should be stricken from the law. And of course, the Fifth Circuit froze that ahead of their arguments that they're hearing today. Either way, the arguments go, it's probably going to be appealed to the Supreme Court, um, whether or not the, you know, it, the, the, they they agree with Judge O'Connor, which I I personally would bet that they wouldn't. Um, or if they uh, don't agree with Judge O'Connor, either party's probably going to take it up to the Supreme Court. One of the things is that I think some people wonder about sometimes, and um, including myself, is that why did we decide, why did, under the Obama administration, when they passed the Affordable Care Act, why did they decide that some preventative care needed to be free for the patient, well, the, that the, is? Yeah, the, so the, the, the gist behind it is that these are services that um, – lower the overall cost of health care and improve the quality of the care that we provide and the quality of, of life, if you will. So um, now setting aside somebody's belief, let's say on immunizations, um, if you just look at it from an economic perspective, pediatric immunizations have improved um, the life of people in this country. We've gotten rid of polio, etc and significantly reduce the cost because these are really inexpensive things that we can provide that avoid long-term downstream much more expensive things same thing can hold true for let's say screening mammograms and what it does to avoid more expensive long-term you know down the line breast cancers so the the idea that these should be free is well since these things overall save money and improve the livelihood of the people that, that get them we want to have zero financial barrier. We don't want somebody not getting their immunizations because they don't have 10 bucks right. or not getting their screening mammogram or their, or their screening colonoscopy. That's the, the thought process behind it. And to be honest with you, it is widely supported by the medical community. The AMA, the ACR, everybody says, yes, these things should be free because of what they do. I guess this is more of a, you know, a philosophical question, but I'll go ahead and ask it anyway. That we're basically ten years into the Affordable Care Act at this point, so why are we still litigating it? We as a society, um, I suppose. You know the, the 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 initial thought that I had is, well, why are there some people that still want to argue over the Civil War? I mean, you know, right? Um, <laughs> there are people who just don't want to. Um, there are people that don't agree with the Affordable Care Act, and I think there's some valid concerns about the Affordable Care Act, and I and I respect people's rights to say we should have never passed it, but they won't sort of say, well, okay, we got beat, um, it's the law of the land, uh, or they won't try to change it from within. Congress could get rid of the Affordable Care Act if they wanted to. They could amend it and change it if they wanted to. Instead, they look for sort of a legal loophole. Um, and, you know, Judge O'Connor is clearly not a fan of the Affordable Care Act. He thinks it's illegal. Um, and he's, you know, a, a good judge to take arguments to. And in this mm-hmm. case, they're, you know, arguing about the, um, you know, about the task force. They also, one of the, in that ruling, one of their arguments was that some of these preventative care um, measures violate religious beliefs. 
um, the the stuff for prep for HIV. Right. And they're saying that people shouldn't be forced to businesses shouldn't be forced to cover it because it violates their their religious beliefs. Um, and he ruled in, in favor of that as well. That will also go before the mm-hmm. the appellate court and eventually before the Supreme Court. So you know it's it's people are still trying to fight a battle that was lost you know, 10 years ago. Right. Although covering HIV treatment or HIV testing is, is a, in my opinion, at least very different from something like covering contraception, which you had with the Little Sisters of the Poor case, um, that, mm-hmm. you know, there, yeah. there are a number of different ways you can get HIV, including being exposed by blood, bodily fluids, whatever. Um, so that one, I wonder if that's not going to be a harder one to argue this go around than it was previously for some of the other parts of the Affordable yeah. Care Act. I think, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a very uphill fight that they've got the, the proponents of this to fight this, in both cases, both from the religious belief perspective as well, as the, you know, the the task force perspective. One of the things that I think is, from my perspective, interesting is um, nobody's saying that the patients have to have to get these things. They're just saying that if they want them, they're free. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I understand what they're saying is that as an employer, I shouldn't have to cover them right. um, for these reasons. Um, but really, this preventative, well, the other argument you can make from an employer perspective is if employers don't cover these things, then their premiums are actually likely to go up. Mm-hmm. So how did, you know, because you if you're making the argument that you're forcing me to pay for things I don't want to pay for, well, true, but that actually saves you money. Right. If I, as a small employer, could say, I'm not going to cover pediatric immunizations, I'm not going to cover this, I'm not going to cover that, I'm not going to cover that, the actuaries are going to say, well, then your premiums are going to go up because mm-hmm. that's going to cause greater expenses downstream. Right. Well, the uh, the Hill has a good summary of this case, as does Axios, and we'll have both of those articles linked in the show notes and at flatlining.net. Hi there. Thanks for checking out the Flatlining Podcast. If you like this program and the content you're listening to, do us and your fellow healthcare workers a favor. Subscribe to the show on this platform and share it with your friends. We're quickly growing thanks to you, and we want to help more and more physicians and practice managers stay up to date on the most pressing issues in healthcare. So subscribe and share the program with your friends and colleagues. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Moving on now to some drug news, as we talked about previously, I, I think it was the CEO of Johnson & Johnson warned that this was coming down the pike, but it, it looks like Merck has done it first, and they're suing HHS and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services over the Inflation Reduction Act, and specifically the part that allows Medicare to negotiate certain prescription drug prices. And as a primer, this, you know, as a refresher for people, it's like 10 drugs a year out of the thousands and thousands of drugs that are, uh, that are covered under Medicare. Um, so we were skeptical that it was actually going to lower any sort of drug costs. Um, but I think that, um, Merck is using an interesting argument here that HHS and CMS will be negotiating those drug prices to be below market rates and that that's a violation of the fifth amendment. So I'm curious what you think about that, Ron. Well, first of all, I don't think this is going to be the last case. Um, I think you're going to see various drug companies file several different cases and they'll keep searching for arguments until they, you know, find one that wins. And I think Merck went first largely because they can show significant damage. Um, Because um, one of their, 
their cancer immunotherapies, Keytruda, is likely to become on that list is mm-hmm. you know later like 2028, uh, and that's a lot of money for them. So I think they jumped in because you know they're going to carry the water. They could they could be significantly damaged, and that'll right. help their case. Um, they're they're actually it's it it's there's two arguments they're making. One argument is the Fifth Amendment, which is the amendment that requires the government to pay just compensation for private property taken for public use. It's the concept that if the government says, "Hey, we need your house to build a highway," right. they can't take a million dollar house and give you ten bucks for it. Right, it's eminent domain. Just compensation. Yeah. Right, eminent domain. So what Merck is saying, which is an interesting argument. Um, there's not a whole lot of in in the way they're doing it a lot of great case law so it'll be interesting to see how it goes is that look just compensation for this drug is what the market bears just like just compensation for my house is whatever the market would bear Mm -hmm. would buy it for not what you deem it be worth um and that's going to be an interesting argument they're also um arguing under the first amendment the freedom of speech amendment and they're basically saying that these contracts the government is going to require you to to um, sign to sell to them will have a provision in them that you're you're um, basically saying that this that's fair compensation and they're saying well it isn't we don't agree with that but we have to uh, you know we have to sign that contract that limits our ability to have free speech because if we sign the contract and then complain about the fact that you beat us over the price, you're going to say, well, the contract says you agreed that it was fair. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, both of them are going to be interesting legal arguments. I don't think if they lose, that'll be the last one. And I think these things are, are headed eventually to the Supreme Court. This idea that the government can sure. price fix will yeah. be headed to the Supreme Court well, uh, and that's eventually. What, and we've talked about that before. Essentially, that's what this is, because you really can't argue with yeah. the federal government. It's it's the federal government. It's do or die in this particular instance for them. Yeah. And, and there's another interesting sort of legal concept here that they've not pursued yet. And that's, can the government be forced to break Medicare up under um, sort of antitrust legislation? Okay. If, you know, there's, we've got examples of companies getting too big and controlling too much of a market. And the FTC is saying, well, you have to break up. You have to break into pieces because you're too dominant. And that dominance is causing damage. Um, when they broke up, they, you know, years and years ago, when there there was one phone company and they had to break them up into the individual, you know, what they called right. the little baby bells. Yep. Um, and there's some precedent that when you deal with health insurance, which Medicare is a form of health insurance, that you can't take the whole market as a market that Medicare is its own market. And that precedence comes from the when um, Aetna wanted to buy Humana and it was, it was disallowed by the FTC. Part of what the FTC said was, because Aetna was claiming, well, we don't create enough market dominance when they look at the total population. The FTC said, no, 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 no. You create market dominance in the Medicare product and that's its own market. And it's mm-hmm. sort of what in, in antitrust world saying, you can't compare automobiles to airplanes. Yeah, they're both transportation, but they're two different markets. Right. And they were saying, well, you can't compare Medicare to non-Medicare. It's two different markets. So it'd be an interesting appeal to say, well, wait a minute, even if they lose this, to go, yeah, but this is now an antitrust violation. They control too much of the market because they're Medicare. Right. And whatever price they set for this drug is going to flow through even to the Medicare Advantage plans. Could they force the federal government to break Medicare up into individual state Medicares 
That's mm-hmm. I mean, it's just another. I think there's going to be a lot of attacks to the federal government price fixing, which is, you know, a, a difficult thing. And it's interesting you you mentioned the antitrust thing because it, it's you're you're absolutely right that that is something that it gets. Um, litigated and reviewed in pretty much every single industry. I, I can think of one of the most regulated ones would be television and radio that I can think of. And in that instance, I think it's 10%, but I'm not positive. A company can't own more than 10% of the U.S. market in television or radio. That's why all the networks only own the big ones like New York, L.A., San Francisco, etc. And so why is it that the insurance companies in this and in Medicare – as another example, either the red, white, and blue original Medicare or Medicare Advantage, why is it that they seem to be able to operate with that sort of monopoly in a lot of instances? Because I know we've looked at this before, the data from the AMA shows that, thinking just in particular Michigan, because it's where I live, that some absurd majority of the population has Blue Cross Blue Shield here in Michigan, as opposed to any of the other plans. So why why is that allowed? Well, insurance companies are exempt from antitrust violations. Now they're exempt from the the monopoly, um, and they've been exempt for quite a while. Congress did that. What happened with that and Humana was not them breaking them up, as they weren't allowing a merger, which they can do. Right. Um, so, you know, health insurance has been exempted from um, antitrust, and there are times when. Um, other things get exempted from antitrust, and I'll give you a perfect example, because it's in the public's best interest to exempt them. Um, power companies you yes. know, are the perfect example of, of electric companies of being exempted by, man, by antitrust. The reason why they get exempted is it wouldn't make sense to have 10 different competing power companies and 10 different sets of power cables or electric you know, lines running all over the country. That right. wouldn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So what they do is say, fine, there will be one electric company, but we will regulate their rates to make sure they don't do this um, overcharging or monopolistic um, pricing. Well, insurance companies have re- are rate regulated on the state level for fully insured as well. So, um, but that's why their insurance companies are allowed to be exempted. But it, it points out that there's a very important principle in a you know free market economy, and that is competition. And that's why they look so closely at everything, because we don't want things to become uncompetitive because then bad things happen to consumers. And that's really what, you know, they could argue here is Mm -hmm. because this is not a competitive market, the the government controls too much of it. They're doing damage um, with that monopolistic behavior. Right. You also have the the question about whether or not it's going to inhibit the ability for research and development for some of these drugs. I know that's been an argument by certain conservative groups. It's also been an argument by Big Pharma uh, over these drug price negotiations and the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, the weird the weird part for me, and then you know we can uh, we sort of we're almost done kicking this dead horse. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, it's weird because I, I do think we need to bring drug prices down. I think that right. the companies are, are the way the system's set up. They're gouging. They're making exorbitant profits. Um, I do think we need to figure out a way to get our drug pricing in this on a much more competitive, efficient, and less expensive scenario. I just don't think this is the right way to do it. I, I, I personally don't like any sort of, of government price fixing because I think it's the more you start to do it, it's that slippery slope of, you know, censorship or anything else. Where do you stop? Right. Um, and once the government can start to decide how much a product or a service is worth, 
where does that stop? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I hate to see us get down uh, down that slide. Well, and we've seen in recent weeks too how even the threat of regulation on particular things has has caused companies to turn around. For example, the thirty five dollar insulin cap on Medicare. Um, there were several yeah. insulin co- insulin companies that turned around and just made it across the board for themselves before they get regulated to do that. And in the automotive right. industry, the threat of mandating the AM radio stay in cars caused Ford to turn around and say, oh, never mind, we're going to keep putting those in cars before the government tells us we have to. Um, so it, exactly. you're, you're right. It's, it, it can be a slippery slope, but it's interesting to see sometimes how the, some of these companies will correct themselves to get ahead of, of certain regulations. But yeah. we haven't really seen that with... Um, um, at least drug prices, to, other than insulin, to, to, yeah. my, to my knowledge. We'll uh, we'll go ahead and move on from this. If you want to hear more about it, uh, check out the Reuters link in the show notes and at flatlining.net. The other drug thing we wanted to talk about today, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on it just because I don't know how much of it an issue is anymore, uh, is that the FDA revoked the emergency use authorization for Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, you'll recall that this one was already fairly restricted given the Um, minimal risk of some blood clots and the FDA made clear that Janssen BioNTech was the one that actually requested the withdrawal and they cited low demand and they said that the last lots purchased by the government have expired and can't be given to patients anymore. So I guess my my main question for this, Ron, is is do COVID vaccines matter anymore and does it matter that the EUA for this vaccine was, was revoked? So I do think COVID vaccines still matter. I mean, you know, COVID 19 is still a, a, a pretty prevalent virus out there. There are still people, especially people at the, you know, the elderly people with respiratory issues where you don't want to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the vaccines are still very effective at um, really protecting, especially the most vulnerable population from very severe illness and fatality. I mean, people mm-hmm. are still dying from COVID-19. Um, so I think the vaccines still matter. Does it matter that they're you know, they're taking this one off the market. No, I really don't think it does because what's changed is, and if you think back to, you know, when COVID was running rampant and the vaccines were first being developed, one of the big concerns were, how do we get millions and millions of doses out there as fast as possible? Now, having multiple vaccines, uh, which at the time that, that this was approved, they didn't have the, the blood clot data. Um, having multiple vaccines out there and multiple production lines helped to do that. So it's one of those things where, in my opinion, where science and medicine should continue to change as they get more information. And what we've got now, the more information is we now know there is a little bit more risk with the J&J vaccine, not huge, but more risk than the others. Okay. We know that it of the three is of the three main ones is the least effective. It's still very effective. Um, and we no longer have the kind of demand. So, of right. course, why not pull it off the table when the demand isn't there? We can we can meet demand with the other two. Let's take the one that is not quite as good as the other two and pull it, which is why their own manufacturer did that. Said, hey, you know, mm-hmm. let's pull it off here. We don't need this one anymore. So, right. um, you know, that's really what's going on, which, you know, I know some people will tout it as, see, I told you these vaccines are terrible, which yeah. isn't the answer. Um, yep. And what it should be touted is that's what should happen. Right. As we get more information, we should adjust. You know, mm-hmm. that's science. And I don't think they ever came out with some sort of bivalent booster. I think only Moderna and Pfizer were the ones that came out with that um, right. and were the only ones being offered. And, and it's because and it's because they knew that 
you know, theirs wasn't as good and it did have a little bit higher risk profile. So why, you know, why continue to put resources into that when, you know, they sort of knew this day was coming, um, right. which is fine. Um, one thing I'll throw at you real quick, even though it's not in the show notes, just because I was thinking about it, but you will recall that last year in August, uh, Moderna was actually suing Pfizer over uh, the patent infringement um, that they claimed that Pfizer had copied some of Moderna's um, uh, patent on the COVID-19 vaccine. I haven't heard anything, any updates on that since then. However, another pharmaceutical company, um, Allen Lamb, is suing both Moderna and Pfizer claiming that they both copied their COVID-19 vaccine, uh, their delivery system in the COVID-19 vaccine. So I'm just curious, you know, I mean, obviously, and we've talked about this before, that protecting patents, as we've talked about for drugs, you know, before things go on generic, there's legitimacy there that sometimes you need to ha- need to be able to recoup your, your research costs yeah. um, before that goes generic. But are we heading down on a kind of a weird, you know, rabbit hole with Moderna suing Pfizer. Now someone's suing both of them because of over copyright infringements that during COVID were not enforced and were not allowed to be enforced because we were in the pandemic. Well, so the, the thing to understand is these cases really are not about the COVID vaccine. They're about the next one. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's what these companies are jockeying for. Um, it's a little bit like, you know, I, I've told the story before that, you know, I, I saw an interview with Coach K, the, the former Duke basketball coach, and somebody in the interview was asking about why, you know, he argues so vehemently with for calls and he's never gotten a, a ref to reverse his call. And he said, I'm not arguing over that call. I'm arguing for the next one. Mm-hmm. You know, if I make my point now, I'll get the next call. So these companies all know that the technology involved here, which is the new technology that created these vaccines, they want to try to establish some, you know, copyright ground so that that technology, when the next virus, the one that we aren't seeing, you know, the the new novel whatever virus mm-hmm. um, comes out, that they say, no, 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 it's our technology, so they'd be in front of it. Right. Um, right. So, like I said, it's people say, why are you, why are you? worried about the whole COVID thing when all this is going on, uh, it's the next one they're working on. Mm-hmm. Um, because this technology um, and and the science behind it, they think can be utilized for other types of, of, of services, being able to just send a message to the body's own immune system to create a, a defense. You know, you can think of a lot of uses for that, especially whatever the next pandemic is. Right. Well, when that pandemic rolls around, uh, I'll ask you about it, Ron. How does that sound? Hopefully both you and I will be long <laughs> since retired. That's my hope. I'm hoping we get another hundred years, but sure. Right. If it rolls around while we're still doing it, let's talk. Huh? And we'll do it here on the Flatlining Podcast. Ron, thank you so much for joining us Absolutely. again. Thank you. Enjoyed it as always. Make sure you're subscribed to the Flatlining Podcast so you never miss an episode, including our new series, Pulse Check on the Candidates. More details on that are available at flatlining.net. Just click Election 2024. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.